when we're feeling these symptoms, that's all we feel and that's all we think about and that's all we're like obsessed with, right? Like, oh my gosh, I lifted my son up. Holy crap, I feel more of that sensation. I can, oh my God, I can never lift him again. He's only gonna get bigger. Oh crap, I can never like, you know, swing a kettlebell again. Oh my gosh, when how am I gonna be able to lift the groceries? Like really our minds go to places. And so my biggest piece of advice to someone is Welcome to Mom Strength, a podcast and movement to empower, educate, and showcase mom strength inside and out. I'm your host, Surabi Veach, physiotherapist and fitness coach, also known as the Passionate Physio. Join me for discussions on movement, mindset, and motherhood, where we raise the bar and challenge the status quo. Get ready for expert interviews and real, honest conversations where we explore physical, mental, and emotional health. Let's celebrate the beautiful diversity and common experiences in all of our journeys. Let's do this. Hi, friends. I'm so excited to be having a conversation today with Aliyah Dalla. So Aliyah is on Instagram as Box Wellness Co. And she has an amazing page where she educates people uh, with a sense of humor on all things prenatal and postpartum pelvic health, preparing for labor and birth, and also addressing common issues such as leaks, pelvic pain, painful sex, diastasis recti, um, and more. Aliyah has extensive training in pelvic floor dis- dysfunction, prenatal and postnatal pelvic health considerations, cesarean section recovery, and diastasis recti. Um, rehabilitation. Aliyah's mission is to educate and empower women about the changes that occur in their bodies throughout their lifetime, including during pregnancy, birth, and beyond. She's a pelvic health physiotherapist with over 12 years of experience, and I'm really, really excited to be chatting with her today. Hi, Aliyah. Hi. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to be chatting with you. Um, first of all, your reels are hilarious, and I love your sense of humor. Um, when did you start on this whole you know, journey to doing the work that you do today? Why don't you share a little bit about you? Sure. So as you mentioned in that cute intro, I've been a physio for about 12 years, um, but pelvic health physiotherapy is a little bit of a newer Uh, obsession of mine, I guess you can call it. Um, I have a six-year-old son and when I was pregnant with him, I had one of those, you know, pregnancies that's like, you know, great. No issues. I felt really good. I I know, right? The ones that people just really don't like to hear about. I know. And the ones that I was like, "Uh, this is triggering to me because someone else is having such a good time. And Totally, totally. So I had one of those. Um, but then I literally had like a labor experience from hell. Can I say that? Um, and so my son, like, you know, he took his sweet time coming out. I was in labor for like 47 hours or something like that. It was a lot. And, um, you know, I wasn't at all prepared for my labor experience. I wasn't at all prepared for my postpartum recovery. I didn't know what to expect with respect to like things that can happen, um, yeah. you know, when you're pushing for so long or, you know, just <laughs> these common experiences a lot of us have, you know, prolapse and uh, pelvic mm-hmm. pain and all, all these kinds of things. Right. Um, and I actually found it quite shocking that like, as 
a professional, like I wasn't a new grad at the time. I, right. I had been practicing for six years, I guess, at that time or more. Um, but how was I like, you know, professionally an expert in the human body and in movement and all these things, like how, how is it possible that there were like parts of my body and things that happen in these very, you know, natural, normal and common pregnancy and labor experiences? Like, how did not, how did I not know about this? And if I didn't know about this, then what about all the other people that don't even know basic anatomy? Like it's not their, their profession or it's not even something that interests them. Mm -hmm. Um, So I really felt like, holy crap, I was so alone and confused and um, like, didn't know what to expect. Um, I'm, I know I'm not the only one. So it kind of became my thing to learn more about what was going on with me and obviously to like, you know, rehab and quote unquote fix, um, fix my own issues. And that kind of led me to this journey about wanting to educate and connect with people who are, you know, expecting or want to want to be pregnant and people who are planning or preparing for their own labor and delivery experiences and those that are you know, going through their own postpartum recovery. I really just didn't want anyone to feel like as alone and broken as I did. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, frankly, knowing the things that I know now and the things that I teach now, um, it wouldn't have, I don't think, changed some of my experience, but my um, awareness or my understanding about what the possibilities could be would be different and that I really do believe changes our experience of things if we didn't even know oh my god I didn't even know this would happen then you feel blindsided by whatever mm-hmm. happens whereas if you kind of know that these are the possibilities and these are things that you can do to perhaps minimize or mitigate these risks and this is what to happen this is what to do if x y and z does happen to you i think that does change our experience and our expectations so anyhow um i really don't want anyone to feel the way that i felt and so yeah i'm like on this mission to kind of educate and empower people um and just teach um as much as i can about this this type of stuff prenatal pregnancy labor delivery postpartum that's my jam it's so important and i love um you know we have a similar story right it's like Mm -hmm. I, I'm a physiotherapist. I'm like, how do I not know this stuff? Because, mm-hmm. and for anyone listening, it's because back when we graduated from physiotherapy school, there was like one lecture on pregnancy, like literally one lecture. And think about how many people are going to be pregnant in their lifetime. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like half the population-ish is yeah. capable of maybe becoming pregnant. Uh, and out of those, a good percentage do. And so... I love that you, you know, took about this journey. One thing that you said uh, that struck out is, you know, learning more doesn't necessarily change your birth, you know, your birth journey, but it allows you to feel, you know, maybe better supported. Uh, And the example that I like to use is imagine you're going through puberty and you have no idea that you're going to suddenly sprout armpit hairs and pubic hairs. Mm -hmm. And then it occurs and you're like, what the heck is this? And nobody's warned you about it and you you just have no idea. Yeah. Versus like, you know, your your parents are like, oh, by the way, you're at that age, you're going to be starting to, you know, grow this, the hair and you're going to go through these hormonal changes. Mm -hmm. And you're like, okay, cool. So when it happens, you might still be like, whoa, this is weird, but... You're just pre- better prepared for it. Yeah. Um, and so when you first became a mom and so did you end up seeing a pelvic PT during your pregnancy or postpartum experience? Did you know about that back then? 
Um, I knew about it during my pregnancy because I had some friends that were, um, that had done some of their training in pelvic health physio. So we had some casual conversations back and forth about things to do like perineal stretching and massaging and stuff like this. Um, and in fact, what's funny is that my, I think it was my mom. Yes, it was my mom who had colluded with my aunt and my aunt made me like homemade ghee, which is clarified butter. Mm. And my mom and my aunt were telling me that I should use this ghee and stretch my badge. And really? I was like, you guys, you guys are nuts. This is some like, you know, old wives tale. I am not, I'll, thing. I'll use the ghee to, to put on my popcorn, but like, I'm not going to, <laughs> to do this. And I think I, I had that knee-jerk reaction because that's what we do to our parents, especially like, yeah. you know, um, yeah, our immigrant parents, immigrant parents. With, yeah, um, we're like, what? What could they possibly know? It's, it's, yeah. And I, I feel totally ashamed of my response right now, obviously. Um, but it was really funny to to think about how things go full circle, and you know, people have been doing this type of work, preparing women for labor, preparing our bodies, um, and also caring for women postpartum differently than we do here in Canada, right? Like my mm-hmm. my sister in law. Um, She's Chinese Malaysian, and I think I'm not going to um, speak with any kind of authority on on that culture, but I do know that in some Asian cultures, they have this kind of period of um, rest or confinement of like 30 days where the mom is kind of cared for by others and doesn't need to like really do anything, um, shouldn't wash her hair and should eat like, you know, nourishing foods that other women bring to her. And we just mm-hmm. doesn't exist. This doesn't exist in our in our life here as Canadians, right? And anyhow, so I think that we can learn from other cultures and our own cultures and embrace that. And um, to to go back to your original question, which did I see a pelvic health physio in pregnancy? No, I didn't. But I had some casual conversations, both with my aunt and my mom and with my <laughs> friends. Um, but I did see one postpartum, but not until a little bit later postpartum, which is when my issues started to creep up around maybe when my son was, um, a year and a half or around two, like that's when my issues started to creep up, to be honest. Oh, um, so yeah. they weren't immediate postpartum. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I, <laughs> I had a number of issues immediately postpartum, but not necessarily with my pelvic floor that I knew of. Like things were okay. Like with me, I wasn't having leaks. I wasn't really having pain. Um, everything was generally fine after the immediate recovery. Um, but it was when I started to um, you know, put more demands on my body. Like I like to lift weights. I like to do stuff like that. So when I was pushing my body, um, to a place where my body wasn't quite ready to be pushed, like I was lifting heavier things and I hadn't done the work. I hadn't done the work. I don't think to, you know, um, really prepare my pelvic floor and inner core for this. And so as I was gaining strength elsewhere, I started to feel symptoms of heaviness and like something was literally falling out of my body. I was feeling symptoms of prolapse and Mm -hmm. it wasn't, like I said, until later, until he was about a year and a half to two. And so that's, and I knew kind of right away what it was. Um, and that's when I went to kind of, um, to go seek some, some support and some help, which was great. Nice. Yeah. But it took a while. That's good to know though, because I think people assume that it's going to be in in that, you know, six weeks postpartum, two months postpartum mark that all your symptoms are going to occur. Yeah. Um, and you may feel great Mm -hmm. early Mm -hmm. on or, you know, beyond that early phase where nothing feels great. And then, you know, things start to feel better and it might not be till you actually start to push yourself where you, your body starts to feel it. Yeah. Um, and that there is support even, even at 18 months, two years postpartum, right? There's tons of support. 
And the thing is like, that's the nature of prolapse, right? Like, you know, the stat is something like one in two of us will have prolapses. Mm-hmm. Um, but we don't, not all of us feel symptoms. We don't feel symptomatic. Maybe we don't feel heaviness or pressure, like something's down there. And that is likely what happened to me. I don't think I necessarily created that prolapse lifting. I really don't think that's the case. I think I was mm-hmm. pushing my son out forever. And <laughs> I probably always had some element of a prolapse, but it wasn't symptomatic. And then at some point it did become symptomatic. And now generally it's not. And now if it is, I know exactly what I'm not caring for in my own body. And I know how to address Mm. that now, Um, which is, you know, what I, what I hope and aim to, to help other women with who are experiencing this type of stuff. And when it comes to those like early postpartum weeks, um, you know, when I was seeing, you know, women in person in clinic, and now when I do so virtually, I really, I stay away from giving any kind of diagnosis of a prolapse or I think you have a prolapse. Like I won't even put that in someone's head. Yay, the, I'm yeah. clapping. I don't do that. That is so important. Yeah, I don't do that. You cannot take that away. Once you once you tell once you tell someone that, that's it. That's stuck with them. Because having a prolapse diagnosis is not just a physical diagnosis. It really affects our self-worth. It it, it affects so many aspects of our life and what we think we can and can't do because someone said, I think you have a prolapse or this sounds Mm -hmm. like a prolapse. I will not, I refuse to do it in the first few months because in the first few months, things are like going back to where they belong, right? You're still getting that baseline, you know, you know, the tissue is coming back to its regular kind of tensile strength and length and all that stuff. And we're still trying to establish that new baseline. I won't, I won't ever put that in anyone's head. That is amazing. I wish all practitioners did that because, um, yeah, I've worked with clients where they're just, they have it in their head that they have prolapse and their degree may be quite mild, but, Mm -hmm. you know, the degree of prolapse does not always correlate with the symptoms Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. or the degree of symptoms that you you have. And, you know, Google exists. So people are going to go home and be like, I've never heard of this prolapse thing. Let me look it up. And then you start to see the visuals. And that's, that's what I did. Yes. And you just have this horrific image of everything falling out of your body. It's horrific. You can't, yeah. you can't unsee that. Or you like, you know, you, you think of your great aunt who, oh my God, my great aunt had like this surgery because her uterus like fell out. And that's okay. just, you know, like things that are passed down. And it's, I, I don't think her uterus fell out. And yeah, so there's a lot. Um, it's a loaded term, and I don't. Yeah. And I think I approach it this way, and I'm not the only one. I know a lot of other clinicians who approach it similarly, like won't give a diagnosis like that or even put it in someone's head. Um, I think I do that because of my own personal experience, and I I know, like you know, when when we learn about prolapse and we learn about prolapse management and diagnosis and all that assessment and all that stuff, you know, we're told theoretically that, you know, a prolapse diagnosis, um, there's a big psychosocial component to it. Um, but that means nothing to someone who hasn't experienced it. Like, you know, I say that with respect, but it doesn't mean anything unless you've, you know what it means to be on the other side of that, um, Mm -hmm. diagnosis and that feeling. So I think that's what kind of gives me, that's, that's why I take the approach that I, I take. I think you have more empathy when you're you've experienced it and you see see how it can really affect your yeah like you said psychosocial like it's a mental and emotional injury or a condition or you know whatever word you want to you call it and the fact that it occurs in one and two births vaginal births is it shows you that it is quite common and that we need to we need to talk about it more because I think 
that a lot of people with prolapse live with that shame because it's not a visual or an external injury that people can see. Yeah. And it's something that you're experiencing on the inside and um, there's a lot of shame associated with that. And can you talk a little bit more about even just like ways for people to um, re-familiarize with them, themselves with their, their body postpartum and, you know, what are some recommendations that you have for people with, with prolapse maybe? I think like my biggest recommendation with respect to prolapse is for, you know, someone who thinks they have prolapse or has been diagnosed with prolapse is to stop thinking about it. And this sounds really <laughs> insensitive when I say it that way, just stop thinking about it. But honestly, it's the best advice. Stop thinking about it. Because when we feel those symptoms, because they're not painful per se, right? Everyone Mm-mm. experiences it differently, but it's not pain. It's not pain. It's a weird sensation. It's annoying. It's irritating. It's distressing. It's it's ick, you know? Like it makes me yeah, feel it's when gross. I feel it. It's gross. <laughs> um, and so for me and for a lot of women that I work with, when we're feeling these symptoms that's all we feel. And that's all we think about. And that's all we're like obsessed with, right? Like, oh my gosh, I lifted my son up. Holy crap. I feel more of that sensation. I can, oh my God, I can never lift him again. He's only going to get bigger. Oh crap. I can never like, you know, swing a kettlebell again. Oh my gosh. When, how am I going to be able to lift the groceries? Like really our minds go to places. And Mm -hmm. so my biggest piece of advice to someone is to stop thinking about it, is to make conscious effort to stop thinking about it, to assure themselves that like things are not going to literally fall out of your body, right? Because a prolapse is not that one of our organs is like knocking on the door of your vagina, that it's going to literally one day you're going to go to the washroom and like wipe and be like, oh, look, there's my bladder in my hand. That's not (laughs) like, that's not what a prolapse is, right? A prolapse (laughs) is, you know, laxity in the tissues that are holding up our organs in their proper spot. And that Mm -hmm. laxity, maybe weakness or like ligaments that have been stretched out, that laxity in those tissues that support the organs means that those organs are pushing into the walls of our vagina. So like our, our organs are just being those nosy neighbors that are pushing Mm -hmm. into the vaginal canal. And that's what we're feeling. We're not actually ever going to find our rectum in our hand. If we're talking about pelvic organ prolapse in the way that we're talking about it today. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think sometimes just reminding ourselves that nothing is actually going to fall out of my body um, that, you know, I don't have to think about it every single second. Um, that can really help because we know now, right? Like the the research and the science behind how you know our bodies interpret pain or distressing signals and how that can actually augment what we actually feel and how what we think impacts how we feel and and you know, this whole Mm -hmm. intersectionality of that, I think that is an approach that we can take because yeah, you can get the advice. You can get in positions which are going to eliminate gravity. Sure. That's absolutely wonderful. You can do the right type of exercise for your own pelvic floor muscles. So stretch them if that's what they need or strengthen them if that's what they need or a combination of both. But if you're not getting out of your head and stopping, you know, the ongoing thoughts about this prolapse, you're going to have a hard time. I really do believe that. Mm -hmm. So get your head out of your veg. (laughs) I love that. Get your head out of your badge. Um, and I completely agree with what, you, what you've what you said is the mental game and how we feel about our pain or symptoms mm-hmm. um, drive how you feel or how they actually are perceived by your body mm-hmm. and how um, big a deal your body's making, you know, of this, this symptom that you have. That's right. Really, 
not thinking about it is oftentimes how you're going to move forward um, in a better way. And then, of course, seeking support from people like you, pelvic health physiotherapists, who are able to give you the proper education um, and coaching to help kind of help you move forward beyond Mm -hmm. that. Yeah. And it's not to say like, stop thinking about it and ignore it. It'll get better. No, this is, Mm -hmm. this is not the intention of kind of my statement, but we don't need to be thinking about it every single time. And you know what, this kind of applies to a lot of things. Like, you know, if we have low back pain, for example, which a lot of us struggle with, a lot of us, you know, moms or not, we have aches and pains and low back pain and whatever neck pain. If we're thinking about something all the time, it's literally all we're going to think about, right? It's Mm -hmm. not, we're not helping ourselves like by, by this um, running dialogue in our head or this kind of rumination or worrying about the same thing when it comes to kind of our physical symptoms, sometimes that doesn't serve us. So yes, we should seek support. We should do the right things for, you know, that injury or that impairment or whatever it is, but we should also try to find the balance of, of not becoming, you know, obsessed is not the right word, but like it preoccupying every single minute of our day like that's not constructive that's not serving us I really don't feel that and um I remember one of my pelvic health um PT colleagues had casually said to me after I had experienced prolapse after my first and I'll never forget this she probably doesn't remember it but she's like I because I was like oh yeah I have to carry my you know daughter all the time um you know, we take a lot of stroller walks because she likes sleeping in a stroller and I just feel like that heaviness. And she's like, oh, well, you shouldn't be doing that. You shouldn't be carrying her then. And I was like, it just stuck with me because I was like, so how do you want me to care for my child? Are you going to be coming here and carrying my baby or pushing the stroller for an hour? Because yeah. if you're not, that's not a smart, that's not a useful That's not helpful. Advice. No, I'm That's sorry not that, helpful. Yeah. And it's very, um, back then, I don't, I mean, I have no feelings about it now, but back then that really felt um, disempowering for me because I was like, oh my gosh, like I can't even take care of my baby. Like my body's just totally failed me. It's it's totally broken. And so if you are listening to this and you've seen a practitioner who's made you feel like your body's incapable, um, Find a new one. Find us. Find someone who is empathetic and understands, and is not going to plant more fears and doubts in your body. Yeah. Um, because you know, both of us can agree that we strongly believe that your body is magical and it will will work. Uh, and there are ways for it to get stronger and get more functional and serve what you need without you feeling so negatively about your body. Totally. And I think, like, I'm so sorry that happened to you. Like, our words as practitioners and as people that you know, others come to for help at vulnerable times in their lives. Um, That's a huge responsibility. I feel it's a huge responsibility on my shoulders to be careful about the words that I use. I don't get it right every time. Of course not. I'm human. Of course. Yeah. But I really try. It is top of mind with every conversation I have with, you know, with people one-on-one in consults. And when I do any kind of educational workshops, I try my very best to, to not say things that are going to make people feel bad about themselves or mm-hmm. that are going to make people feel like broken or that are going to make people feel, you know, fear. I say things, um, you know, matter of factly sometimes so that we're aware, but especially when we're talking about a person's individual experience or fears, like it's, it's a huge responsibility. Our words make an impact. I remember words that, 
you know, therapists and people have said to me, I remember, I hold on to the, I'm not over all of them, right? Like mm-hmm. words are really important. And when people are coming to us for help, which is what they're coming to us for, you know, it's an immense responsibility. So I'm sorry that happened to you. Thank you. Because that's not helpful. It's First not of all, helpful. It's like not and... sensitive, but it's like, so like, and judgy well, like, it's like ooh, well you're carrying our baby ooh, well, you, you shouldn't be doing that if you have symptoms it's well, like, like uh... you know that, like when I was um like really symptomatic at the beginning and I was trying to get a handle on things like I said my son was young and he was kind of around that age where he liked to swing between me and my husband like if we we're walking down the street then we would each hold one hand hold and he hands, would like yeah. swing and I know when well, you know people say you're not supposed to do that but whatever tell that to a two-year-old who wants to swing incessantly <laughs> but he was like upset obsessed with swinging at some point. And that particular movement on my body felt horrible. That's when I felt the most symptoms is like that downward drag and that like needing to, I guess, use my core to stabilize. I'm not sure what it was. With like rotation too, right? Because he's only on one side. Exactly. That was immediately I would be symptomatic and it would last for some time. And that was really distressing to me because I was like, that's such a fun thing. And it's such, and then I had to tell him, you're hurting mom's body. Like what you're doing is hurting my body. My body doesn't feel good right now. It'll feel better. It'll feel good later. It doesn't feel good right now. Um, And that was a number of months that we were kind of having that conversation. Um, And so, and that was me myself self-limiting because I knew that I didn't like the way that it felt for me. Mm -hmm. Um, But if someone had told me like, oh, Aliyah, it hurts you when, or it doesn't hurt you, but you're symptomatic when your son does that well just don't do that <laughs> it's just not helpful advice right? wouldn't have helped um, anyway. well it got to the point where because I did a lot of this learning during my second pregnancy in terms of pelvic health and uh, postpartum fitness in particular and I remember during my second pregnancy I was so afraid my prolapse would worsen mm-hmm. that I avoided carrying my toddler beyond like 34 weeks Mm -hmm. and she was like two right so Mm -hmm. like tell a two-year-old I'm sorry I'm just not going to carry you home from the park when you're tired or like and it was really like you said like it's kind of distressing almost having to tell your child repeatedly like I can't do this for you Mm -hmm. because it's part of being that part of being your parent is you being able to care for your child Mm -hmm. and you know I really empathize with people who are limited because of pain or injuries or symptoms and they're not able to do the things with their children or in their life that they want to do uh, and you're it was self-limiting for me too I didn't have to do that and it was self-limiting because I still remember those words that were said to me yeah. like "Ooh, that could make it worse yeah. and that potential of making it worse was like scary to me right yeah. and and I think we need to remember, and also I have to say that this person had said this comment and she never had kids. Yeah. And so sometimes professionals are professionals and they're really great at their job, yeah. but there can be a missing piece of empathy when you've never been through it or you've really never experienced motherhood. Yeah. And I'm not that's not to say that everyone who works with mothers need to be mothers, yeah. not at all. But I do think that if the person you're working with lacks that ability to really connect with you on your level, um, you know, really consider maybe finding a practitioner that is more supportive Uh, because there's lots of them out there. There's lots of them out there. Yeah, I do. I do agree that I think it is a, it is a valuable like asset to be able Mm -hmm. to relate, especially when we're talking about these types of things that go beyond being able to effectively assess and treat. We're talking about like lifestyle management. And in order to do that, we need to either be really good listeners and really good question askers 
Um, is that a word? Um, so that we, we can really <laughs> understand the problems and the pain points so that we can effectively help create strategies, right? Um, our job is not to fix people. Our job is to help them fix themselves. So that's, that's what right. I believe. So if you're not asking the right questions or you're not hearing the right answers, if you're hearing what you want, um, or you're asking, you know, kind of cookie cutter questions because you don't have any personal experience, you're not going to be able to help that person, you know, find the tools and find the strategies. So there is some value for sure in working with someone who relates what your life, who relates to what your life is. If we're talking mm. about how to manage your life, which is manage, a, it is. This is yeah, it's it is. not just an injury or a symptom. It's it's a lifestyle approach, um, and it, it. I love what you just said, um, and it can't be a cookie cutter approach. Every postpartum person is not the same, no. and every postpartum person with prolapse is not the same yeah. um, with any injury. And I do think that even if you and ten other people with the same injury are doing the same types of exercises, but how you manage it in your life may be different um, because your your needs are different. So that's something. Everybody, everybody has different goals. Everybody has different things. And even when you're working on, you know, a program that is generalized, right? So like some of your group coaching where I'm sure Mm -hmm. the majority of the exercises are the same, but Mm -hmm. each person will have maybe something slightly different that they need to focus on based on their own needs or their own goals or what's going on with their own body, right? And I think that's, that's the thing we have to keep in mind that everyone's experience is unique and is different from you know the next person over and everyone's goals right everyone's goals and I was just gonna say that's why my small group coaching programs I ask in my intake form what their goals are what they enjoy what activities they enjoy what they want to get back to because everyone has always said something different even though some of them may have similar um you know, lengths of time postpartum uh, or similar injuries uh, or symptoms. And I think that even though I'm giving them, let's say, similar exercises, I do cue for, okay, if you're experiencing this, here are some ways you can do this and give different options Mm -hmm. because you can still be successful in an exercise, in a general exercise program Mm -hmm. if you're given options. Um, So to any listeners out there who are, let's say, like running to their nearest um, group fitness class and like, I want to do a boot camp or kickboxing class. And if you're finding that the things they're giving you, you know, the options they're giving you don't work for your postpartum uh, body or where you're at in your journey, um, try to work with someone who has that specialization in pelvic or pregnancy and postpartum and pelvic health Mm -hmm. because you're just going to get more tailored, uh, tailored approach that's better suited for where you're at right now. Mm -hmm. Totally. I think that there's great value in kind of group exercises or group coaching or even some programs out there for purchase. I think for a lot of the population that those are sufficient, right? With some Mm -hmm. minor tweaks, a lot of people can be very successful. And then there's some people that need really more one-on-one stuff if they have other things going on um, and they're not the right person for generalized programs or coaching um you know but exactly like if, if somebody's experiencing a lot of a lot of pain and a lot of like individual um considerations I don't recommend a, my small group program yeah. because I think they need that more one-on-one care totally. for for better outcomes for yeah. them yeah. um and then you know maybe small group or fitness group fitness maybe something a little bit later a little bit down the road yeah. exactly yeah, I totally agree And, you know, one of the other topics that I wanted to talk to you about is we've talked about this before in, you know, specifically in South Asian populations, that whole martyrdom 
martyrdom in motherhood Mm -hmm. and you know sacrificing moms are just kind of romanticized right like oh look what I did for my kid you know I made this elaborate cake and I plan these cute activities and and whatnot so why don't you share you know your own experience with that and um, you know where we go from there I think this is such a great topic and yeah you're right we have chatted on and off about this a lot because there's so much to say and I think this is so um, ingrained in the South Asian community um, and in other communities as well for sure I can't speak for other communities I'm I'm not you know a part of them but I do know (laughs) this is not exclusive to South Asian communities but you know we're like raised in such a way that you know, we're raised or we are um, shown role models, our own moms maybe, or aunts, mm-hmm. or I don't know, um, of, of women who break their backs to take care of everybody else. And the men literally just sit there with their feet up, right? Yeah, and literally do nothing. Literally do nothing <laughs> except for maybe complain or ask when XYZ will be ready. So that's, you know, early on, I didn't think I was raised with that example. If you had mm. asked me this, I would say, no, my, my, the home that I was raised in was pretty balanced. Um, my dad was an active, you know, father and he was an active partner in the household to my mom. Yeah. My mom did so much stuff. My mom did all the cooking and all the stuff, but I really, my experience growing up was that it was fairly balanced. They had different roles, but it wasn't, um, it wasn't so like a, a demonstration of martyrdom. I'm different now. Now as a mom, I can see how mm. it wasn't what I thought when before I became a mom. Um, my dad was very involved and he did do his own thing for sure. And he raised us. So I am one of three. I have a brother and I have a sister. And he raised me and my sister as in fiercely independent, like almost to a fault. Um, (laughs) You can do anything that your brother can do and you can probably do it better. Like this is the messaging that we got at home when it came to sports, when it came to like academics, when it came to, you know, even um, going out and having a curfew. Like we, it was very similar. And mind you, there was huge gaps between me and my siblings. My brother is about six years older than me and my sister is about six years younger than me. So there wasn't that direct comparison because we we were never going through um, similar phases at the same time. Um, anyhow, but that's the messaging. So I think that's where I got confused is I was I was raised to be equal to my brother and to like boys and I was raised to be super independent, but, and the example my mom sent, like she went to university when she was pregnant with me and she graduated, I think when she was like nine months pregnant with me. And, you know, when I was a preteen, she opened up her own business and she hustled hard. And so like all these really positive progressive sort of role models. Um, But then at the end of the day, if I boil it down, my mom was and continues to be a martyr and you know i don't think she's ever going to listen to this she's kind of miserable about it right like she's she's miserable and Mm. she doesn't even know she's miserable but we all know she's miserable Mm. she just like you know she she does all the things for everybody and so i see this in myself and i Mm. see myself repeating the exact same things that my mom did and it drives me insane. It's I can see it happening. I'm literally doing it. 
but it's so hard to break the pattern for myself. And it's a work in progress. And especially as my son is getting older and more independent, I am able to step back and be like, actually, you don't need me to do this. You can do this Mm -hmm. by yourself. And in my home, I am much better able to set boundaries and to maintain them. Um, But it's, this is really an instinct for me to put everyone else's needs ahead of my own to my own downfall and to my detriment. Like this is, this is something that is very ingrained in me and, and I don't exactly know where it's come from, but it's really challenging for me to break it. And when I try to break it, um, I feel a lot of internal resistance. It's very strange. I don't know if you have similar experiences, but it's very strange. And in my home, things are fairly, the gender roles are fairly clear in my home. Mm. So it's very tricky. It's so interesting that you say that. And I, so I had a, um, episode with Takesha August, a podcast episode that's coming out in a few weeks. And we talked about intergenerational, uh, intergenerational stuff. Mm-hmm. And so even if, let's say, you grew up with parents that were very like, you know, gender roles were very balanced, even from like your grandparents and beyond your ancestors, there might be that internal, um, I don't want to even say trauma, but like those feelings of resistance yes. when you're doing something that's like against the grain of what, let's say, society or your cultural norms tell you yes. uh, you should be. Yes. And personally, I have a, I have a similar experience to different but similar. Um, my parent, yeah, my mom literally does everything. My dad is like the laziest person. He, <laughs> if he listens to this, I don't mind. I will say it because it's true. And like anybody who tries to argue against that is just you know there's no argument it's just a fact and like my brother and I know know this and you know even my mom knows this my mom is not miserable she's very very happy but it's another problem because you if you're really happy being self-sacrificing and a martyr that's a problem because like we need to talk about your self-worth right because I think it's almost better if you if you are doing that and you're resisting it because you're starting to see that you have worth outside that's tied that's not tied to what you're doing for your family 100% right versus like my mom is so down that road she's grown up with models where the mom does everything and same with my mom she went got her master's when she was when I was born, Mm -hmm. she started, you know, she was working, she was a professor at the university, this is back home in Mm -hmm. India, and she's very well educated, um, more so than my dad. And, you know, she was the main breadwinner for a long time, and cooking, and cleaning, and doing all of the child rearing, literally like everything. And even to this day, she like cooks fresh, and she helps out. Mm -hmm. And she's just the sweetest person and I'm constantly getting at her to like stop doing work and mm-hmm. just like take care of herself yeah. but as an adult and still a child you know because we're still children as adults yeah. like I take advantage of that too at, at times because I'm like oh well she'll do it and so we need to talk about this because it's it is very prevalent in South Asian populations and I grew up as more of a rebellious child so I was like whatever my mom's doing I'm not doing that so <laughs> like I when my, you know, I just didn't want to do that. I was, I saw how much work it was and I saw how it would infuriate me that my dad wouldn't do more. Mm-hmm. And I was like, no, that's just not happening. Um, so I don't, I don't find I'm, I don't catch myself doing a lot of that. Um, that's so Because good. it's just something that I've practiced for so long to get away from. Um, and it probably is a journey that takes years. Like I can't say that I was always like this because you're right. If I default to something, it's like what my mom would do. And then I have to be like, wait, but do I want to do this? Or is it just because I 
think I need to do this. Yeah. Um, one example I can say is this has nothing to do with being a martyr, but like my mom will always say like, be careful or like, oh, you know, don't do this because, and she'll like make up a like lie or something <laughs> just to like scare you, like scare a child into like being safe. Yeah. And I caught myself doing that. I'm like, why am I lying to my child? I can just be honest. Don't run across the street because cars are coming yeah. and they will hurt or kill you. Like that's right. a fact. Yeah. Like we need to be safe. It, it's not like, ooh, you know, it, like just made up stories. And so... As parents, we need to unlearn so much that we were raised with. And it's hard when you're combining the, that intersectionality between being a female and being a an immigrant or from an immigrant family. Yeah. Um, and then there's the stigma against, you know, trying to be too North American, right? It's like... It's so tricky, isn't it? Like, I think being, you know, you, you would be first generation no you're an immigrant right I'm an immigrant yeah so we moved here I was 10 when we moved here so, so I saw how it was in India and like I I I was even upset about it in India like as a kid I don't know yeah. I was just that weird kid I guess that I was no. like infuriated by you're it like and then just... when we moved to Canada I saw other families like one of my best friends growing up her her family like their parents were like the model example of like you know where the mom and the dad did everything like both things that were very involved and I was like this is the kind of family that I want right mm-hmm. because that was the first time that I'd really seen that and I think it's important to say that like in the South Asian community communities this type of martyrdom is prevalent but in a lot of communities oh, yeah. that I've seen um, it is that way. And I think mothers in general struggle to, you know, focus on that self-care and self-putting themselves first. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned something so interesting about your mom, how she's not miserable. She's happy. But, like, you're questioning, like, what do you really think about yourself? Like, what do you, what is your own self-worth? And I think that's so interesting because I've really tried to unpack this, both to try to understand my mom a little bit better, but really selfishly to understand myself a bit better because, like, <laughs> I'm not interested in being her in 30 years like I'm I'm not interested in going down that road but like I'm literally walking that road right so I'm really trying to figure Mm. this out and I think that you know for me there's like some codependency issues here going on where like I'm I'm a people pleaser and Mm. I, I I I I learned that I guess I think, I think if I'm like going deep inside, I think that people will only love me or like, like me if I do things for them. When I know like factually, that's not true. Like, you know, I know that I don't need to do things for people or to break my back for people. They'll still love me just for being me. Or if they're my friends, mm-hmm. they're still my friends just because they're my friends and my family's going to love me because I'm their family and I am who I am. But it's so interesting um, to kind of try to separate those two things. Whereas when I look at my mom, it's actually part of her identity. Like she doesn't even know who she is when she's not cooking for other people or, you know, literally bending over backwards to like go take care of her grandkids, you know, my brother's kids Mm -hmm. or whatever it is. Like she doesn't know what to do with herself. And then the wheels fall off the train at that point kind of thing. Right. Whereas, you know, that that's her identity. That is who she is. She is a person who does things for other people. And when she has time, she doesn't even know what that means. Like she only takes a break to take care of herself when literally her body has broken down or she's fallen sick or something like this. Right. And like, I'm just not Mm -hmm. interested in that future. And so I Mm -hmm. try really hard to make conscious. If I, I try to catch myself, if I'm like, 
really going overboard to do something for someone that they could do for themselves or that someone else is about to do for them instead of insisting that I got it or I can do it I just kind of let it be like they're not going to suddenly nice. decide they don't like me or love me no. because I'm no. not and if they do that's like that's whack like you know no, it's so, like exactly. there are going to be people who take advantage of your right. your niceness and your you know what I mean yeah, yeah, and yeah. like this is my my mom is a people pleaser, but it's also her identity because that's what she was raised to believe right. was her job right, right. as a female and as a mom. But I think that she does this even with my daughter. Like she wants yes. to do every like clean up the toys for her. I'm like, no, like let her learn. Yeah. Like that's what we do at home. She, she doesn't need to come to your place and suddenly need you to do everything. I know. Like I know she's only three, but she knows how to do this. I know. And it's if we want to enable our kids to be um, not necessarily independent, but just be like responsible, it's – it's hard to do everything for them and then expect them to learn that. And yeah. I think that what you said about, um, you know, you don't want to be your mom in 30 years. I don't, my mom is very happy, but I still don't want to be her in 30 years right. in that way. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it's because that's not my identity and it's not our identity. We live in a different time um, where that's not maybe we can make a conscious decision and choice of how we want to be in our motherhoods and how we want to move forward. I and I think it takes time. Like those changes take time. Like uh, even with our, when we, when we talk about um, all of these things, like I'm in my mid thirties, these changes, like I started learning about this stuff in my teens. Mm -hmm. So like 20 years mm -hmm. of like thinking about these things mm -hmm. so for someone who's just thinking about it after let's say they have a kid and that's the first time they've re reflected on this like seriously or deeply it's going to take time to change that and I don't think um yeah, yeah. One, one thing that one might one of my friends will like blah uh, brag about like the cakes that they made or whatever like I I just I'm like okay cool like I'm happy it makes you happy but I'm not like yay I'm so like I, I'm not as excited about it as they are yeah. because I don't want them to think that like their worth as mothers is tied to like how elaborate their parties are and their right. cakes and their part like right. their, their like activities like if they tell me that they went climbing I'm like yes I'm so excited about them because they did something for themselves right. because I know that brings them joy but like I'll tell you right now making a cake for my kids will never bring me joy but that's the thing Sorby. so like for me it's very tricky for me, I feel, and I'm I'm sure I'm sure I'm not alone in this, but like I and I actually enjoy those things. You enjoy it. I really yeah, do which is enjoy good. cooking. I enjoy cooking for my family. I enjoy finding new recipes. Like I enjoy that stuff. I used to, before mm. my son was born, I used to make my my oldest my eldest nephew, I used to make him these like elaborate cakes for his birthday. And when my son was born, I was like, Sorry, bro, I don't have time for you. And then <laughs> I, I made my son a couple of good cakes for his first few birthdays, but then he decided he hates cake and he doesn't like icing. So I'm not wasting my time making him a cake when he doesn't want to eat it. Now I just order cookies for him because that's what he wants. But um, anyhow, so it's tricky for me because like I've had to find different ways to kind of set boundaries and and say like, I'm not, this is not okay with me. This is a part of like this martyrdom that doesn't right. drive, this doesn't make me happy. Cooking for my family, sure. Sometimes I get tired of doing it. Um, and sometimes I wish that for, for fuck's sake, I wish someone else would also just do it or do it with me. But I actually like it. I prefer to eat my own food as opposed to like going out all the time. Like that, that's mm. me. So it's tricky because I can't just be like, well, I'm not doing that anymore because that is this part of motherhood that I'm not willing to subscribe to. But I, mm. I like it. So it's very, it's tricky. So there's other things where I'm like having to draw lines and figure it out. Yeah. Um, and it's you, right? It has to reflect your 
desires, your values, and what you enjoy. I hate cooking, so... (laughs) Um, you know what? That's a lie. Okay, it's not a lie. I do hate cooking. Um, food was never like a big thing for me. Like I like eating delicious food if somebody else makes it. Um, but I also get really stressed cooking with people around or with oh, kids around. Yeah. So for, I love baking, but I, I don't like doing it with kids around. Mm-hmm. I will do it at times mm-hmm. and just to teach her and, you know, it yeah. is kind of fun for her. But not it's like a me. lot more work for you anyways. It's a lot more work, it, so right? Work. So it's I've realized that like I can I can still bake for my family. I can still do those things. But if it's getting to the point where I'm doing it because I feel the pressure that I should be doing it, uh, because as a mom, I should be baking them homemade treats all the time, yeah. then I question that. Yeah, and you're so fair. right. I prefer making things from scratch because there's better ingredients that go in. There's less preservatives and all that stuff. And it's cheaper. Um, but at the same time, it's – it's weighing the like, why am I doing this? Am I doing this because of those reasons or am I doing this because somebody, I was at a friend's party and she made everything from scratch and now I feel that guilt and pressure that, oh, I, I should be doing that too, you know? That's so, that's such a good point about guilt, right? Like we we compare ourselves to other or we have like this inner like constant feeling of guilt. It's mm-hmm. very weird. I talk about this with a particular girlfriend of mine. Um it's like this guilt that is always there for I don't know what reason. It's very weird. That's a hard one to kind of, that's a hard one to get over. Unpack. Um, I, I, every time I think of guilt, of guilt for anything, I'm like, okay, what would a white male do? Because like, we <laughs> let's talk about privilege, right? Because like my husband is a white male and like mm-hmm. there's some things that I think about that he would never, the thoughts would never even cross his mind. Right. And I think that it stems from privilege of like never having to think about certain things a certain way and being socialized as females and as people of color to, you know, think about things in a different way. Um, So really even just like it doesn't take the guilt away when I when I think about those things, but it at least makes it a little less about me and a little more about like, hmm, this is just how I was socialized. These are just the norms that I was raised with. And maybe that's why I'm feeling a certain way about it. Um, it. It's like, you know owning a business, starting a business, you know, when I have young kids, like I would, I do feel guilty because I'm like, should I be spending this like time with my, my baby because he's only a baby once. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, have any dads thought about that when they go traveling for work Mm -hmm. or, you know what I mean? It's, uh, it's such a genderized thing. It's such a standard that's specifically for mothers. And I think that when it's that way, it's social it's a social norm it has nothing to do with like the importance of only the mother being there around the baby all the time um so you're so right you're absolutely right on that but it's tricky because wherever this comes from like it's there right it's there it's there it's it's there and um it's hard to put our finger on where it's come from because it's just always there it's multiple sources right it's like intergenerational it's your culture it's the north american culture as well um it's what you see on tv and media so it's there's multiple sources but i think practicing um like practicing reflecting on other ways or like what you're proud of you know when i feel guilty of like okay i'm spending too much time on my business and i'm like well but i'm also proud of what i'm building Mm -hmm. so it's it's just a small way of like reframing that negative kind of emotion um, and also listening, if I have spent a lot of time away from my kids and I'm feeling guilty about that, I'm like, all right, I better take a break because maybe my body's telling me something that like I, I need to step away from this. Yeah. 
or like listening to like listening to what you're feeling and then almost like calling yourself on your bullshit sometimes and then knowing when to knowing when to listen to that voice inside I think right is it's tricky because that voice inside is not just our voice it's like the voice of all these other you know sources and subliminal messages and all this this input that we're constantly getting from the media or from social media and from like our families and friends and these like internal things that just exist right I remember like going back to work at 15 months postpartum after my first Mm -hmm. and like multiple patients would be like oh where's your daughter and I'm like has anyone ever asked my partner that when he went back to work at like two weeks postpartum or like for me postpartum no, nobody's like, where's your daughter? They just assume that like, oh, your wife's at home with, with the baby, right. right? And I was like, it's been 15 months. Like, where do you think, like, and A, it's none of your business, but also she may be at daycare. And I remember telling telling people, oh, she's at daycare. And they'd be like, oh, your mom's not watching her? I'm like, why would, like, there's just this huge problem with mm-hmm. people even asking questions like that to to moms and then assuming that your mother should be the one watching your child I'm like my mom works full-time like she that's not her job yeah and even if she wasn't working full-time she already raised kids I don't want to put this on her Mm -hmm. you know I I decided to have a child so it's it's hard to get away from the guilt when you're like when it's put when these questions are asked to you um, because then you, it makes you feel like, oh, should I have felt guilty about going back to work so soon? And then you're weird about not maybe not feeling guilty. It's so weird. It's so and weird. then, yeah, and then I'm like, but I don't feel guilty. Like, this is just how it is. It's so strange. It is so strange. But these conversations are happening, and they def- most definitely didn't happen when our moms were, you know, our age. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. I think you're so right. I talk to my mom about it a bit now, and only now she's, like, thinking about it. But it's too hard for her to change her ways because yeah. she's like, you know, she's just, that's her, like you said, that's her identity. Yeah. And, um, but we can change. We can make small shifts so that we're, we're honoring ourselves too. Yeah. Right? We're not forgetting it, who we are. True. And it's hard. It's hard to make those shifts and it's hard for the people around us when we make those shifts yes. too. Yeah. And because they grew up with their own belief system and they grew up with their own same kind of cultural or gender expectations Mm -hmm. um so it's really weighing all of the parties that are involved (laughs) um and yeah like I think about that now because I have a I have a daughter and then I have a son and I'm like okay my daughter is like a typical like very helpful girl you know likes to be involved with things likes to help out in the kitchen and whatnot and I'm like I can just see like little my son like not helping out with anything because he's the second child and he's just gotten away with not doing as much and I'm like it's gonna take effort for me to make sure that he is also as involved with all of those things even if he doesn't truly enjoy it as much as my daughter but at least he's given those opportunities to like learn how to fold laundry how to do put away dishes all of those things that now my daughter is like learning yeah and I feel that too. Like I just, I just have the one son, but mm-hmm. it's really a conscious effort on my part to, you know, to almost like break some of those intergenerational patterns that yeah. like, if I don't break them with my son, if I don't raise him in a way that he sees that he can cook and he can do things and, you know, he needs to help and that, you know, the same way that my dad raised me and said, you're independent and you can do everything that a boy can do, but better. I have to do the same for my son, right? I have to say, mm-hmm. okay, in our house, I do the cooking. 
but in our house, you can help me. And in other homes, the dads do the cooking. And, you know, it's not so somehow with my language and with repetition and just being really calm about it, I have to explain to him that, you know, that what he sees in his own home is actually not the reality that I want him to have. And what he sees in his grandparents' home on both sides is also not the reality. So it's very tricky. I feel mm. this I feel this is an uphill battle, but I'm going to fight it. But even just talking openly yeah. about it, right? Like I think that's a huge conversation is um, like, you know, it's the same with like, you know, we'll talk to my daughter about like, okay, our family has a mommy and a daddy, but mm-hmm. like some families have two mummies and some families have two daddies yeah. or some family has, you know, no, no parents yeah. and they're raised by grandparents yeah. or someone else. And so, you know, this is how it is in our home. And like, I'll, you know, I'll be like, but do you think what we're doing in our home is the right way? And then she's like, no, I'm like, yeah, <laughs> it's not the right way. It's, it's what works for us. And so I think, I think that's another strategy is like, okay, in our home, this person cooks or this person clean, but do you think that this is the only person who should do it? And it's mm, like, no, because yeah. I was worried about that same thing. But my daughter stays over at my parents, you know, once a week or so. Mm-hmm. And she sees that my dad does zero around the house. She sees that my mom is like basically at her beck and call. Mm-hmm. And I don't want her to get used to that idea of like, okay, this is a role of a woman and this is a role of a man. Um, because it, it's internalized because it is like we're talking yeah. about it is these roles are internalized and as adult females we're now having to unlearn that and kind of change and hopefully we can break that for our kids and I think we can yeah. it, and one more topic that I wanted to talk about is you mentioned um, you know how the stories that we tell ourselves don't always do us good so can you elaborate a little bit on that and you know wh- where that comes from yeah so I think that you know it with with motherhood and in postpartum and when it comes to like, you know, our bodies and, um, what, what we're capable of doing just as people, it doesn't even have to be applicable only to mothers or in postpartum, but as people, I think like, you know, we, we make up stories about people's lives. We fill in the blanks even without knowing it. Right. So, you know, Sarabi, you and I have never met, right. But we became friends on Instagram And now I consider you to be a friend and I know certain things about your life, right? Some things I know about your life because you post them publicly in your Mm -hmm. stories. Some things I know about your life because you and I have had private conversations and Mm -hmm. other things I have literally made up. I don't know what I've made Mm -hmm. up, but I have filled in the gaps. Assumptions. or Exactly. And, um, you know, I do, I, I'm sure I do this about a lot of other people. And I know that people do this even without knowing about me or about other people. We make yeah. up stories. We make stories to fill in the gaps, right? We don't even mean to. Um, and then when we are faced with the reality, which may be, you know, confirming the stories or, or disputing the stories, that's, that's an interesting situation to be in. But I think that we, we make up these types of stories about ourselves as well. We, mm. you know, if, um, let's just use one about kind of getting strong again after having a baby, because I know that's a topic you're super passionate about, but if mm-hmm. we tell ourselves, okay, I've had one or two babies, I'm never going to be able to run again. My body's not going to be, I just, I won't be able to, I you know, I'm still, I'm still holding extra baby weight maybe, or I'm not strong enough, or I don't have the time. 
<clears throat> my baby naps on me all the time. Like, where could I find it? Right. We're, we're creating this story, this narrative that we're replaying to ourselves over and over again. And we're adding to it to maybe make us feel better about the fact that we haven't run yet or whatever the actual topic is. Um, and then that starts to become our reality when really none of it is real. None of it is true, right? Just because you had two babies, it doesn't mean that you can't run. Just because your baby naps on you and takes all of your time, it doesn't mean that you can't find 10 or 20 minutes to go for a jog, right? We, we all can find these types of time. So I guess my point is that the stories that we create for ourselves and that we tell ourselves without even knowing, they're super powerful and they shape our actions. They shape our, they shape our future. They shape how we think about ourselves. Um, you know, so there's a lot of um, chatter in the body neutrality and body positivity space, which I don't take a stand on one way or the other. It's not really part of the language and the education that I do. It's a little bit outside of my, my niche, not um, mm -hmm. because I don't think it's important. I do, but I, I like to kind of stick to the topics at hand, but there's a lot of chatter about that. Like what we tell ourselves when we look in the mirror and what we feel about ourselves. And it's the exact same thing, right? Like we don't have to, I don't think we need to bump ourselves up all the time necessarily artificially, but I don't think we need to create stories and, and, um, narratives that are holding us back. Right. Or if we're someone that, has always behaved in a certain way, but we actually want to change by telling mm. ourselves that I can't do that. I've never done that before. I'm not that person. I am the person that does so-and-so. Um, I'm not the kind of person that can do this. We're, we're never going to become that person. So I think that these stories that we create, these excuses we make for ourselves, um, they are, usually don't serve us. They hold us back. And Sometimes the hardest thing is actually just being honest with ourselves to call ourselves on our own bullshit and to, yes. to move forward from there. Um, we can lie to other people really well. We can lie to ourselves really well too, um, but no one's going to call us on the lines that we tell to ourselves. I love that. I In my first episode of this podcast, I talk about motivation to exercise and that's one of what we just talked about. What you just talked about here is one of my points is, you know, the stories that you tell yourself, is it true? And if it's not true, like a lot of people will say, oh, I'm just so lazy. I, I, I want to exercise, but I'm lazy. I'm like, are you lazy? Or are you just telling yourself that you're lazy so that you don't have to exercise or you don't have to get started? And then it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yes. of I'm lazy, so I don't exercise. I don't, you know. So instead of telling ourselves these negative stories about who we are and just, yeah, calling yourself out and be like, listen, are you going to do this or not? Yes. Because if you don't want to do it, then you won't. But if you actually do want to make a change, you can. You know, it's um, even five minutes makes a difference. You know, totally. like it's it doesn't have to be a set 45 minute window of time to exercise or or any change. You know, even the other conversation we just had about the martyrdom, like if even if like once a day you practice choosing you or like yeah. changing one behavior a week. Right. So it, it's not like an all or nothing. Um and the stories that we tell ourselves is, okay, oh, man, this time I did everything for my kid, which means I'm, I'm a martyr. It, it doesn't mean that – it doesn't have to go that route. It can be, okay, this time I chose this, but next time I can cho choose something mm -hmm, different. Because mm -hmm. um, everything like, is a practice. Yeah, and it makes us more like active participants in our own life, right? Where I think, you know, I think in motherhood um, – and I talk about this a fair amount when I – educate and I teach workshops on preparing for birth. Um, I talk about mm -hmm. how a lot of things are not in our control during pregnancy, whether we're going to have like one of those, you know, great pregnancies or whether our pregnancy is going to be more challenging. Um, we, it's a lot of these things are just not in our control. 
um, when it comes to our, our labor and our birth, it's not in our control, like when we dilate or how quickly we dilate or, you know, how, you know, how much pain we're going to experience. Some of these things are not in our control, how quick things are going to be, how slow things are going to be. Some of these things are just, it is what it is. It's not in our control. And then when you have the baby, then you really understand what not having control is because yeah. suddenly like you're not, keep saying the same thing you're not in control of so many things so many aspects of your life um but you know this lack of control can make some of us who are you know a lot of us are having babies like later in life right into our 30s we are very used to being independent and you know autonomous about what we do and how we choose to spend our time that it's a big shock to our system when suddenly we don't have that anymore. We've had mm-hmm. it for so long, for 10 plus years, right? We've been independent. Making- we're established in our careers. Exactly. We're established in our household. I know. Exactly. It's it's hard it's for us. That control, right? And so if we continue to spin these narratives about, you know, excuses or reasons why we can't do X, Y, and Z or why we are X, Y, and Z type of a person, usually in a little bit of a negative light, then that's, again, like taking that element of control away from us. Whereas if we are listening to that voice in our head and we're being more like real and you know really asking ourselves why we're thinking about all these like defeatist types of things um we actually Mm. take back some of the control that we don't have as as new moms right and like i said as you know my son's six so like your daughter is is three right now so you're you're not far but you're still kind of far away from when your children are a little bit more independent but you want you want to know what to do with yourself when you, they don't need you every single second of the day or you're going to turn mm. into my mom <laughs> you know it's true that's the other thing i was thinking about when you were talking about um you know our moms and my mom has zero hobbies right so it's like if she's not caring for someone cooking she kind of gets like a little anxious yes. she's like i don't know what to do with myself yes. and so the importance of when you're younger when you're a new mom is just cultivating those self-care me time things that you truly enjoy because and then remembering that remembering like that's part of your identity too and that that's important to you yeah. too um i think it's, it's it's so so key and you know that really leads nicely into our final thoughts and you know one of the questions that i have for you is what are three things that you do for yourself um small things big things whatever it is uh, for self-care every day? For self-care, truly, um, like I'm not the kind of person who does really well with a bath or like a glass of wine. Like that that stuff, honestly, I just roll my, ar- my eyes so hard whenever I see that kind of <laughs> stuff because I just don't relate to it. If it works for someone else, that's great. Um, but you know what does work for me is actually like eating well. And this is a little bit of a control mm. thing. Um, and I know this, but this is one thing that I can control. So if I you know, if I am eating foods that are good for my body and that make me mm. feel good, um, I feel I feel good about that. So, you know, eating good foods because for me it helps, you know, with my digestion and my great poops that I love talking about. So that like really feeds <laughs> into it. So eating really well, getting some kind of movement in, whether it's just like a long walk or whether it's a run or lifting weights or just doing some mobility, I have to move every day or I turn into a very cranky person. And that's because that <laughs> time is like just for me, right? I don't like company when I'm doing that. Sometimes I have company of my son, but like I prefer to be alone and that's me time. And then recently I've gotten into, um, like I'm almost 40. So a few, a number of years back, I was like, I should probably start taking care of my skin so that I 
the melanin's only going to take me so far. So, <laughs> so recently I started, um, like I added in gua sha. Is that what it's called? Like when you yeah, use I've heard stone. of that. So I actually bought a stone and have never used it. Yeah. So I like little by little over the last couple of years, I've been adding little things like small, tiny pieces. Like I've been habit stacking with like my skincare. Um, before I never used to even put cream on my face before I went to bed, and so putting like lotion on my face before I went to bed, was a huge step for me. So once I mm. established that pattern, then I can like add to that routine. So over the years I've been adding habit stacking onto that, my skincare routine. So anyways, now I do like two minutes of gua sha every night and every morning. And that, that's awesome. Yeah. It's, it really sounds like nothing, but it actually is like a big deal and it feels quite nice. So I like, yeah, like put like a two minutes. Like too. we underestimate like what two minutes can do. Honestly, like two minutes of movement, two minutes of self care makes just changes the mood of your day. Yeah, uh, I love that you start the day with that and and end it with that. Yeah, too. yeah, that's cool. I, uh, I need to um, you need to ha- show tutor- tutorial on how to do. <laughs> oh it. my god, uh, yeah, no, I I I do not think I'm the one that you want to see a tutorial from. <laughs> You should YouTube it. Someone, someone more qualified will someone, show you how to do it. Yeah, someone who's, but it's always like someone who's like fifteen with like zero like wrinkles or puffy eyes, and I'm like, what are you guashing for? Like, and I don't even know if I use the term uh, properly. I also do not know, but yeah, um, yeah. no, it's you know what? It really feels. If you had told me this a long time ago, that okay, so now my nighttime skincare routine is like. <laughs> wash my face if I'm wearing eye makeup, and like remove the eye makeup, and then use like a. Uh, like do a double cleanse and then I put on a retinol and then I do my gua sha and then I put on a night cream like it's a lot (laughs) um but it's like the 10 step routine it takes like four (laughs) minutes so it's really not that much but like I never used to put on cream on my face before I went to bed so I would have like you know like um my skin would feel so tight like that was my normal yeah yeah yeah. so anyways this is a big step for me but you're right it's like two minutes in the morning the morning one makes a big difference because usually I just like start my day start the day yeah Yeah. nice I love that I love those ways for caring for yourself and I love that it's so unique to you too like that's what I love about asking that question because it is so dependent on the person answering um and what is something that you've been into lately that you've been super passionate about truthfully the last maybe six to nine months my son and I have been really obsessed with going to the library we have a library that's like just 200 meters from our house and it was closed during COVID and that's when we both started getting really into like looking online and putting books on hold and going to pick them up so I've been like really into getting books from the library and not finishing them all before they're due but that has (laughs) been like my thing I I can't like you know oh my gosh I'm about to tell myself a story about myself I can't make time to read books is a story that I tell myself um but but I can't and so I've been trying to read like even just one chapter a day and I don't always make it um but I I yeah that see that story I'm catching myself I have found though with reading because I've told myself that story many times and I made it easier for myself by getting real books instead of like ebooks that just like expire and I just don't even notice um but I find that you can get so much out of even the first couple chapters of any book (laughs) so I call it a win if you just start a book (laughs) because honestly I'm like so many books they have like amazing ideas right off the bat and then they like repeat it throughout the throughout the book so that the message sticks and you kind of understand Uh, the deeper elements you're talking more like nonfiction. Yeah, and I'm talking – I was just going to say, I'm talking more nonfiction. Yeah. If you're reading fiction, like, read the last 10 pages. <laughs> Don't do that. It's cheating. Just take it out from the library again later. 
Yes. Yeah, don't listen to my oh advice my on how to read nonfiction or uh, fiction books. Yeah, so like taking out um, books from the library, I've like maybe finished a few here and there. But like also I've become extremely obsessed with my plants as a lot of people have during COVID. Mm. Um, so I used to, Are another story I used to tell myself was that I can't keep plants alive because I couldn't. But the thing I used to do with plants is that I used to buy them and then I used to put them somewhere nicely. And then I used to literally freaking ignore them. I never would water (laughs) them. I would never check on them. And I actually realized that this is like this analogy for how I care for myself in my life as the years have gone by. Interesting. Yeah. So I used to like, I used to not really care so much about myself, but I never really needed a lot of care, especially before I was a mom. Like it was fine. I was able to fill my cup with friends and family and whatever. Um, And so I used to just like ignore myself and it was fine at the time. Just like I would buy these plants and ignore them and then they would obviously die. And then I started to get plants and I started to occasionally think about them, occasionally water them, but then like completely forget about them and then, or overwater them. So just not giving them the right type of credit they needed. And then I was able to kind of like spend more attention on plants when we were all home for COVID. Like they were right by where I was working. And so I would look at them more and I would think about them more and then now I'm that crazy person that like I talk to my plants every night before I go to bed my husband's like oh are you talking to the plants now I'm like yeah I'll talk to the plants and I'll come up later and I literally <laughs> look at them and I you know I look for the new leaves and I I tell them they're doing a good job and That's so if cute. I don't see like new growth on plants I am immediately researching what I could do better. And that's kind of like how I think about myself. So it's not enough that I just simply exist in this life without having a nervous Mm. breakdown. I actually Mm. need to figure out a way to like thrive in life, just like my plants. Like it's not enough that they're beautiful and they're there. I actually want them to grow and I want to see new leaves and I want to see all kinds of stuff. So it's kind of like this metaphor for, I guess, this period in my life that I'm coming into right now. But like I'm obsessed with my plants. I love it. I love that. Um, and that brings me to, do you have a favorite book? Do you have a favorite book or podcast that you listen to? I don't listen on your, I don't listen to podcast too much because I'm fairly introverted. And so right now with everybody at home all the time and me being fairly social on social media, what I need Mm, is quiet. So I don't, I don't like listening to podcasts too much. And if I go for walks, I don't, don't listen to anything. Um, but I do like the Michelle Obama podcast and now and again, I will listen to that because I like her as a person and she has some interesting interviews on there and she's just kind of like a straight shooter. So I listen. I was going to say, she's pretty cool. She's pretty cool. Yeah. 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 I like her. Nice. And how about a favorite book? So this one book that I got from the library not long ago that I actually finished was called like While Paris Slept or While Paris Sleeps. It's a really good story. And there's another one, American Dirt. I think that's what it's called. That one was a good story. So those ones you should check out. But there's this book by the holistic psychologist called How to Do the Work, which is a bit heavy. Um, Mm. It's like a self-help kind of book. And that one's been sitting on my bedside table. And I'm kind of leafing through that one here and there. But it's interesting it's about like um you know breaking these types of like patterns that have been passed down from your families and how to identify them in yourself and you know what you know what these types of um what this type of stuff looks like in adults um you know if you had a childhood that was like filled with x y and z this is what it might look like in your life right now as an adult and this Mm -hmm. is how you can fix that so it's kind of interesting validating too probably to see that like okay this is why this is why maybe this is happening right now yeah definitely it's interesting 
Um, nice. And if uh, people want to get a hold of you, where can they contact you? Where can they find you? I know you're on Instagram. Yeah. Do you want to share your, your info? For sure. So I'm on Instagram. That's the place where I'm most active. And you can find me at Box Wellness Co. And my website where it has all my offerings and other information is boxwellness.co. So easy. Mm-hmm. Nice. And what kind of just if you um, quickly share like what kind of services and workshops that you have so people um, down the road can kind of tune in? Yeah. So throughout the year, I hold different types of workshops. Um, a few times a year, I hold a pregnancy workshop series, which is about preparing women or birthing people for their labor and delivery experiences and what to expect postpartum. And then throughout the year, I also do kind of standalone virtual workshops about preparing for birth or preparing for postpartum. Um, I see people one-on-one for virtual consults. And I also have some products. I have a box of postpartum essential that's newly launched so there's which looks amazing I was like if I (laughs) I'm not having another baby but if I was I would be getting my hands on that box oh my gosh thank you it's exciting um, super exciting and I love how entrepreneurial you are and you create like the best stuff you just package it up so nicely so I think uh yeah check it out I'll, I'll include the link to that as well when um my podcast uh, episode releases and I'll also send it in my uh, email newsletter so that they have it. Thank you. Um, and one final question. What would you say is your mom's strength? My mom's strength? Um, I would say that my mom's strength is just being able to anticipate people's needs sometimes before they even know that, which is to my detriment sometimes. <laughs> sometimes mm-hmm. I just need to let people be, but I think that's my mom's strength. You're very intuitive it sounds like you're very intuitive right yeah. or like yeah. yeah like I'm I um like body language or people's like not energy per se because that sounds a little bit woo-woo for me but like people tell you and they show you they show you what they're thinking they show you what they're feeling um yeah. even without the words and I think that's because that's how I am too I don't I don't always find the words to say what I want to say but if you know me then you and you're paying attention know what you, want. you should know yeah yeah, fair enough. Uh, I love that. And that's a skill that, or that's a skill slash talent that uh, not everybody has. Mm-hmm. Some people are totally clueless. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're so right. <laughs> Some people are just, yeah, out to lunch. <laughs> well, Aliyah, thank you so much for spending your time with us today and sharing so much uh, of your experience. And this was an amazing conversation of very important things. And I hope that you as a listener, Um, can relate to this and see that you're not alone, especially if you are, you know, entering that martyrdom and mom guilt phase because you and I, we're professionals working with moms and we're still feeling this. Mm -hmm. So we know that our average listener may also be in the same boat. Uh, And together we can, we can change the world. You got it, girl. Thanks for having me. For all our listeners, if you're listening to this episode and you find what we um, talked about helpful, take a screenshot, share it on social media, and tag us at Box Wellness Co. and at The Passionate Physio. Thank you. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Mom Strength and being part of this important conversation. Check out the show notes for more info and links, and we'll chat again real soon.